0: Well, it's my delight to invite you to open your copy of God's Word this morning to Psalm chapter 16, Psalm 16. In a similar way to how our church hangs a banner over the year, uh, rooted this year, our family has been hanging a psalm over our year, and this is the psalm that we selected for our year to be words of grace over us. They've been companions to us at the breakfast table, our drive to school or work, And I'm glad to preach these beautiful words to you this morning. Please stand in reverence for the reading of these perfect words from our sovereign God. Psalm chapter 16 Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Lord, thank you for these words. Thank you for rich words of life that point us in the direction where we might find life and safety and so much more. I pray, pray that you would make these realities sweet to us today. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever felt defenseless? At threat? One of the most memorable family vacations I experienced. Was in middle school. My family went on a sailing trip, and we went sailing. On our first day, we found an island that was shaped like a crescent, and there was a cove in the middle where we weighed anchor for the evening. And my twin brother and I, we were in middle school. We decided that we would get the dinghy out and try to row to the island to explore that afternoon. Well, things didn't go as planned, and um, maybe it was the little boat, maybe it was the little oars, and maybe it was me and my brother, but. We didn't arrive at the island. Actually, instead, the current started pulling us out to sea. And I took an assessment of the situation, and I thought the only reasonable course of action was to jump ship. And I jumped out of the boat, and I swam back to the sailboat, and I left my twin brother to drift out to sea. And I imagine in that moment, he felt like this, defenseless. Um... I think it's a feeling, though, that we all can relate to. He was saved. He was rescued. A speedboat came and got him. It was all fine. He's still alive. But it's something that we can all relate to, I think, this feeling of danger. Maybe if you've been on a hike or camping and the winds come up, the clouds roll in, the thunder strikes, and you realize you have no shelter. You're in danger. We live in a world that's full of dangers like that, in a world of chaos, where we need protection. It's a real need that we really have. We're exposed, we're weak, we're defenseless. I often think of life as a journey. And you can actually imagine all of history like a journey. It, It began with our first parents. They were sent on a journey called exile from God's garden, from experiencing God's presence, from experiencing life and fullness and blessing under God. And they were sent in a land of danger. With no safety. But history is also the story of a God who rescues his people. Who has come to bring them back to relationship with him. Back to his presence. Back to finding blessing and delight in him. That's the story of history. That's the story of our lives. We tend to overcomplicate life sometimes. Especially spiritual life. Really there's only two roads. There's a road that God has called us to. A road that leads to life and peace and joy and blessing. And there's another road that leads to destruction, to death, to separation from God. It's simple. We have a choice to make. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress talks about life like this, a journey. And it says that we all begin our journey in a city called destruction, on a path to destruction. As a kid, I thought I didn't really understand the subtleties of allegory And I thought, why would anybody who lives in the city of destruction stay there? (laughs) This is simple. Life is more simple than we give it credit for. There's a life, a road to life, and a road to destruction. The question for us us is which path will we choose? In the Psalms, we find an everyday kind of spiritual life. We find songs that would be the soundtrack of the lives of the community of God. Songs for the road, songs for the workplace, songs for the table. And in this psalm, David sings a song that describes what it's like to journey through life under the blessing of God, to walk the path of life as God desires for us. That's the first thing we see here this morning is where to find a light. That's God's desire for us. Verse 1 says, this is a prayer, Preserve me, O God, keep me,' it means guard me, keep me safe from danger." For in you I take refuge. This preserving here would be like a shepherd guarding over his flock. It's a call for protection in general from the dangers of life in general. This isn't like David's in a cave somewhere with Saul chasing him. He's saying, I need protection for all of my life. We need protection from God. But it's not going to stay general. He's got a really specific kind of protection that he needs in mind that we're going to get to here. It's a need for spiritual protection. And he goes to God for protection himself. He goes to God. David has put his faith in God. He says, you are my refuge. He's declaring that God is the only place that he can find that safety. This is what faith is like. It's trusting in God. He's put his trust in God as his safety. This idea of God himself as our refuge uh, resounds throughout the Psalms. Over Almost one-third of the Psalms have this theme, and it points us to this need in the dailiness of life for constant protection from God in a world of danger. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We find what makes a truly blessed life only if we take refuge in him. That doesn't mean that we live in a a life that's free of danger or free of suffering, yet every moment that we don't experience outright calamity is because of the protection of God, so much so that we take it for granted. We live in the protection of God. Outside of the Psalms, the most common reference in the Old Testament to refuge is something called the city of refuge. There were these cities that God designated as real places that people could go, they could run to if they were guilty of manslaughter, if they accidentally killed somebody. And they would go there for safety so that the appointed avenger of that family member wouldn't murder them before they had a just trial. And David sees God like this. God is a refuge that he can flee to for safety. See, he's under no illusion that he's perfect or that he belongs on the path of life. He recognizes that there is sin in his own life. He's guilty, and so are we. We don't deserve to walk on this path of life. We don't belong. But he cries out to God in faith, and it's a cry of conviction in God's character. The only reason he knows that he can belong on this path is because God is a God of mercy, because God is a God of forgiveness. David chooses humility that's necessary to walk this path of life. And we start the journey in the same way. We can choose to put our faith, our trust in God. It's simple. Now David has begun this journey on the path of life, but he also, as he walks on this path of life, discovers amazing delights from God. The first delight is delighting in the person of God himself. Verse 2 says, I say to the Lord, this is all caps Lord, means Yahweh, the personal covenant God, self-sufficient God. He says, you are, Yahweh are my Lord. The second Lord here is Elohim. It means master or benefactor. He says, my God, my master is this personal God, the self-sustaining God. I submit to his rule over me. He says, I have no good apart from you. He sees God as the ultimate source of good for him. Everything that he experiences that is good comes from God. But moreover, he sees God himself as the ultimate good, his ultimate pleasure. His greatest delight. See, the focus has shifted from his need for protection to delighting in God himself as he has come to God. That's what happens on the path of life. The question for us is, do we delight in God like this? Or are we distracted trying to define the blessed life in another way, looking for blessing that God can give us, pleasures that only God could give us somewhere else, maybe a TV screen, maybe at a sports field or in a boardroom. The thing is, you can't find the blessed life in those places. You can bring it there. You can fill your cup from the eternal fountain of God's goodness, and you can bring it to those places and enjoy them as they are, good gifts from God that you can give thanks for, but you're not going to find delight in any of those places ultimately. That's only found in God. That's where David finds his delight. The second thing he delights in is the people of God, his companions. Verse 3 says, As for the saints, it's plural, As the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. He sees these saints, these chosen ones, these holy ones, and he deems them as excellent. That's his evaluation here. They're noble. They have a glory about them. But it's not a glory from themselves. What makes them saints, what makes them holy, is because God has bestowed his own glory upon them. They've entered the path of life just the same way that David has, through faith, through humility, to recognize there's nothing good in themselves, but their goodness comes from God. He has bestowed that glory on them. He says, in the excellent ones is all my delight. All my pleasure is in these people. Now, wait a minute. Is his pleasure in God or in the people of God? All his pleasure? Yes, both of those. (laughs) Why? Because delight is completed when it's shared. This is true for the Trinity, dwelling in eternal unity and joy with one another before time, and it's true of us. Our delight in God is greater when we celebrate Him together. It intensifies our joy in Him. We delight in God with the saints, but we also delight in the saints. That's what David does. And he contrasts this with his evaluation or his distance from the wicked. Verse 4, "...the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips." He says what's true of these people is that rather than running to God for delight, they have run to false gods. They've run to idols to try to provide what only God can give them. They have hired incompetent guards. They're bribing delinquent shepherds. They've bartered the delights of walking with God with idols who can give them nothing. They dwell in the city of destruction. Their choices lead to multiplying Sorrow, more and more sorrow, every decision, every step on the path. Proverbs 4 19 says, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. But don't get too comfortable. This isn't just a problem that happens to those who walk in darkness. This is true for us, too. We could make these same, similar choices. Even if we dwell in grace, we are daily faced with the temptation to look for delight in counterfeit. God's, God substitutes. This, do you know what this is called? It's called stupid. It's stupid to trust something other than God to give you what only God can give you. But there's hope, just like there's hope for David, there's hope for us. It's found in fleeing to God for refuge. When we were leading a a mission trip a few years ago in Daytona Beach, we took students to the beach to share the gospel with people, and there was an advertisement that Coke was running at the time. It said, give a Coke, give a smile. And we would send people out, and they would go up to people and offer them a Coke and say, I'll give you a Coke. Can you tell me what makes you smile? And we sent this group out. There were these two girls. They walked up to this group of tough dudes, and they walked up to one grizzly dude and said, what makes you smile? And the dude said, nothing. Nothing makes me smile. But they shared Christ with him. They shared how he could experience delight in Christ. This guy's name was Mike. And Mike trusted in Jesus. There's hope for Mike. Just the same way there's hope for us to leave the path of destruction and find true delight in Christ. David says, the company I will keep is with the saints, with the church. This is what a rooted life looks like. We are a gift to one another, a great delight to one another. God has so composed this body, carefully constructed it, so that our gifts together build one another up. We have nine new deacons who we see have the gift of service. Some of us, the gift is mercy or teaching. At least one of us has the gift, the spiritual gift of giving announcements. God builds us together with our strengths and our weaknesses, though, Not just our strengths, Even our weaknesses are carefully put together as a family. We're called to bear one another up. That assumes that there's weaknesses. It's part of the plan. But there's a real danger that happens in the life of a church when we start to compare or start to build some hierarchy of these gifts or we see these weaknesses and we say, oh, no, we're not like them. Don't do that. That's wrong. We're called to treasure one another. A word that's become a treasure to me in 1 Corinthians 12 is the word indispensable. Paul writes, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable and on those parts that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. I think of dear saints in our church who the world fails to comprehend the value of. They don't see it, but we treasure them. We care for them. We protect them. In Dickens' Christmas Carol, Bob Cratchit returns from church with Tiny Tim, who's lame. And Mrs. Cratchit asks him, how did little Tim behave? And Bob says, as good as gold and better. Somehow he gets thoughtful, sitting by himself so much, and he thinks the strangest things you've ever heard. He told me coming here that he hoped that people saw him in the church because he was a cripple. And it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who makes lame beggars walk. And blind men see. We are all spiritual cripples apart from the healing touch of God. We are all blind apart from his healing. And even our infirmities invite us to look to him, to worship him. Even when we see the weakness in others around us, it's not a cause for complaint. It's a cause for delight. Because someday we will all walk. We will all walk together. And as we do, we will all talk together of the goodness of God. And until then, we have the opportunity to delight in one another, to bear one another up. Do you delight in the church? Or are you spending more of your time in self-protected isolation from one another? In self-pity rather than true compassion? The third delight that David finds is in the providence of God. Verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The language here is connected to the division of the land when the Israelites moved into the promised land. And the land to them stands as a summary for all of their life. Your lot is God's love and care for you in 3D. It's his love in real life. None of it is accidental. God has perfectly, in his providence, chosen every detail of your life. And it's a gift. Every wrinkle on your face, every crumb in the pantry... What we do that's crazy is we start to evaluate these gifts, these blessings of God, and we say, ah, these are curses. We say things like, ah, this car, (laughs) this family, this job. That's crazy, isn't it? Have you looked at your odometer? If it says 200,000 miles, that's 200,000 miles that you did not have to walk. Isn't that a blessing? Your job, even if you don't like parts of it, doesn't it feed you? Isn't it God's way of providing for you? Isn't your family, your friends, aren't they an encouragement to you? Verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Notice the intentional evaluation that David makes of his life. He chooses to see God's gift to him as good, as pleasing, as beautiful. He says, I can be content, not someday, not when I have this, but today, my current evaluation is that I have a beautiful inheritance. You know what? When God apportioned the land, the Levites, the tribe of Levi, did not get any land. I imagine that maybe like this. Maybe God's handing out keys to the land, and he says, here you go, Dan. Here's your keys to the land. Here you go, Zebulon. Go get you some land. And then, oh, Levi. Oh, this is awkward. Uh, No, that's not how it was at all. He said, actually, I'm giving you the best thing. I'm giving you myself. I will be your inheritance. And David says here that the privilege that the Levites enjoyed is a privilege for everyone who finds their refuge in God. God as our ultimate inheritance, the ultimate lot. You have exactly what you need today. You have everything you need for ultimate delight today, now and forever, because God in his providence is reigning over your life. Well, one question that comes up often in light of God's providence is, if God is so good, if he's so powerful and in control, what do we do with the evil we see around us? What do we do with evil in the world? I was talking recently with a college student and he shared with me that he became a follower of Jesus through some events that started with the death of a close friend of his. It led him to find Christ. And he said that family, the parents of this child who passed away, they didn't even know. They don't even know the difference that God has made in his life. Our lives are like that too. We can't perceive All that God is doing in every situation to bring him glory. Even in mundane things, God is working out one million things. Every situation. And one million is an understatement. (laughs) To bring him glory, to bring us joy, to bring us greater delight. That's what God is doing all the time. This doesn't deny that there's evil or pain or suffering in the world. It doesn't mean that Christianity doesn't make sense. Actually, Christianity has the strongest answer For the pains and hurts of life. It's a bloodstained cross. God Himself can bring the greatest good, the greatest possible good, out of the greatest injustice and evil in the world the loss of His own Son, the death of His own Son. What can He do with the sorrows in our own lives? We have to be interpreting the story of our lives under the providential working of God. Nothing around us is random, it's not accidental. I need to see the things in my life that I see are obviously good and rejoice in them. And I need to take the things that I need to trust God to bring good out of to him. So David finds all of these delights as he walks by faith in God. And we will miss these delights if we're distracted. If we spend our time chasing replacement gods. If we spend too much focus on loving ourselves, loving our own comfort, rather than loving the saints. And rather than evaluating Our lives under the goodness, the showering goodness of God's blessings moment by moment in our lives. The second thing we see is the outcome of delighting in God, multiplying delights. This life, as we walk step by step with God and enjoy Him, we experience His protection over us and we experience multiplied delights. First one is wisdom. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. God gives us wisdom to know how to live daily in this life. In the night also, my heart instructs me. The word translated heart here is really kidneys. It's like our innards. If you like the King James, it's a (laughs) reins. That's a funny word. Um, My insides (laughs) instruct me. It's like gut-level wisdom that comes from walking with God. When we walk with God, we become wise. We are transformed into the kind of person who makes wise choices. In verse 8, we also see a confidence that comes from the presence of God. I have set the Lord always before me. David sets God as his goal, as his aim, as his direction in life. It's the thing he's chasing after. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. His confidence isn't in himself or his own ability to deal with the challenges of life, but his confidence is in the unshakableness of God, the unmovableness of God. He cannot totter. He cannot be overthrown. And because of that, David is able to live with courage in a dangerous world. He is ultimately safe because God holds him. This is the answer to his prayer for protection. And we have it too. We have protection. And even when tragedy does strike, it doesn't happen apart from the wisdom and care of our good God. And all of this leads to gladness. More, 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 Joys, gladness, and security. Verse 9, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. There's an internal gladness and an external rejoicing. That's what happens as we walk on the path of life with God. Isn't that what you desire? Don't you want to live a life full of joy, full of delighting in Him? You can have it. Joy for a lifetime as you walk with God and delight in Him. This is all really good. But wait. There's even more. Yes, it can get better. We're getting to the very best part. The last thing we see here is the eternal delight. Verse 10. Hear the confidence. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the grave, to hell. This is the most specific answer of his prayer for protection. Protection not only while he lives, in general, in every moment of life, but in this moment of death, he is protected beyond death. You will not let your Holy One... It's singular here, your beloved one, see corruption. The one who pleases God will never decay. He will never stay in the grave. David sees that he can have a resurrection confidence because of who God is. He looks at God, he looks at what God has promised to him, and he sees that the Messiah is going to raise him up. He recognizes there's no confidence in himself. He doesn't belong on the path of life. But there is someone who does belong on the path of life. Someone who has walked a perfect life before God, a blameless life before God. And that's Christ. Peter sees this and he preaches of it on Pentecost as we read earlier. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and we are all witnesses. David looks at God, and he sees confidence that he can have because God will raise up the Christ, and he says, that's my resurrection too. It's as sure as that. If you're in Christ, he is holding you. How sure can you be? Hear the words from the eternal one himself. John 6, he says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. If you are in Christ, he's holding your hand. He will not let you go. Indeed, he cannot let you go. He would have to deny who he is. He is a sure refuge. It would go against his very nature to let you go. It would mean that he would fail to accomplish God's will. It's an impossibility for this Holy One of God. We celebrate his res- resurrection not just once a year, not just every Sunday when we gather, but every day is lived under the blessing of of the reigning and resurrected Son of God. And every day we can walk with confidence, not only that Jesus was raised, but in Him we also will be raised. Every dawning should be a reminder of the protection that we live under, under the Son of God. So David arrives at the high point of delighting in Christ, and he says this, verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures, satisfying pleasures forevermore. God reveals to us the path of life, and it's not a philosophy. It's a person. He has told us of himself, I am the way, I am the gate. He who comes to me, I will never cast out. Look in this verse, where's Christ now? He sits at the right hand of God where there are pleasures forevermore. He is the most satisfying pleasure that heaven has. He sits there as our advocate, but he's also our constant companion at our right hand through the journey of life. Every step that you take is a step where your shepherd is holding you. You are safe. He cannot let you go, he will not let you go. And with David, we can look to God in faith for our protection in this life and eternally. We can find our greatest delight, the greatest delight that's possible. God himself in Christ, and it gives us joy now and resurrection confidence every day. Your Savior holds your hand every step. And one day, when you lie down in death, he will be holding your hand. And he will take your hand, and he will whisper in your ear, little child, wake up. And it will be the dawning of eternal delight in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're the only one worthy to walk this path of life. You exchanged your deserved righteousness for our deserved sorrows. And you set your face on the Father. You set your face on the road set before you to the cross for the joy that was set before you. That you might redeem a people of whom you could say, as for the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones. In whom is all my delight. You've taken our death, and you have given us a full share in your resurrection. Help us to delight in you, Father. Help us to delight in your people, to bear one another up, to celebrate one another. Help us to delight in the good lot that you've given us in Christ, the very best part being yourself. Pray these things in Christ's name.